Welcome back to Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts on all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is all about gains, i.e. hypertrophy-based training, how to get more jacked, how to get more swole, how to get more defined, how to get the body that you uh, are probably looking for. Also around weight management, how to uh, trim excess fat and things of the like. It is with the guest, Dr. Mike Isertel. Dr. Mike has his PhD in sports physiology and uh, he's a really brilliant human being. I'm very grateful to get to have him here and to share some perspectives on how to do our training better. Uh, thank you so much for subscribing to this so you get each week's episodes. Thanks for tuning in on the YouTube page at Align Podcast and subscribing over there. This is just part one of a three-part series that I did with Dr. Mike, so tune into those. I don't think we're going to release them all back-to-back, so I'm going to be peppering them throughout the coming weeks and months, uh, but tune in to some more from Dr. Mike. All right, let's get to it with my guy, Dr. Mike Isertel. To start things, what are your thoughts on the concept of partial range of motion, squats, partial range of motion, uh, bench press, and i.e. partial being going down to 90 degrees compared to going down to one's full range of motion? I think it's a very complex, nuanced conversation, but I'd just be curious, baseline your perspective on that that argument, a la Joel Seidman, who I'm doing a podcast with next week. Yeah. There's a few things to say. One thing I'll say is, I'm not sure what the argument is. Like, uh, I don't think the argument has ever been cogently presented. Um, there have been claims made, but I'm not aware of a very integrated argument to support those claims, to attempt to substantiate them, and even really to rationalize them. I guess, mm-hmm. you know, so first of all, the 90 degree thing is a 90 degree joint angle, the, the elbow that's I suppose in the bench press is what we're concerned with. And in yeah. the squat, is that an attempt at a 90 degree knee angle? That's interesting. Um, interesting that the knee joint and the elbow joint are particularly singled out because there are other joints in the bench press and the squat, like the hip joint and the shoulder joint. Their angles are, I don't think have been mentioned and I'm not sure why. So the one question I would uh, love to ask and I was actually uh, involved with Joel Seidman in a, a sort of discussion that I had. Uh, we had on Mark Bell's podcast. Yeah, I've listened to it a couple times. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I asked him yeah. a few questions, and his answers uh, found me grabbing for for more answers and uh, uh, unraveling even more mysteries. I I can put together my own maybe decent reasons as to why sometimes you would prefer to train with a partial top end range of motion. Um, I'm not sure these are the reasons that Joel Seidman. Uh, justifies as as his actual reasons yeah so would that be okay yeah please so we know that uh going into a deep stretch causes more muscle growth and probably more overall adaptation but we also have reason to believe that it it might um cause more muscle damage more connective tissue disruption the very same kind of disruption that leads to adaptation but also more fatigue so uh, for folks that are in-season training, that have a huge fatigue component from their sport, sprinters, American football players, there may be some rationalization, some justification in training to top-end partial ranges of motion as opposed to bottom-end partial, which is the stretch and then you come halfway up and go back down. Yeah, as a way of like saving yourself for the sport. 
in a way. Uh, yeah, in a sense. Yep. You just don't want to come to a basketball game, football game, sprint meet sore um, or tired or fatigued, your joints feeling a little interesting because the adaptive process causes fatigue and maybe the fatigue just isn't worth it. And we might want to put uh, some conserve some adaptations without uh, exerting a ton of fatigue. Um, and the specificity of an athlete's performance may be a bit better mirrored by partial top end ranges of motion than by bottom end ranges of motion. So you're saying, okay, we're keeping lifting a little bit more specific to the sport for now because now during the season is not the time for more general training. It's also not even the time to make gains. It's the time to conserve as much strength power as possible by doing the range of motion that interferes the least with fatigue and things like that, while meanwhile it's relatively sport specific. So we do actually use partial ranges of motion uh, on occasion in sport performance in season on some occasions usually not all, in order to to get that sort of advantage going. But um, much of Joel Seidman's training seems preparatory training to me, and he's claiming that he is driving and enhancing adaptations. And so that, that would not be the goal of such training. The goal of such training is like, look, put some weight on the athlete's back, make sure their muscles don't atrophy, make sure they're getting some kind of stimulus, but making sure that the fatigue you know, comes, comes down very, very quickly and there's no big interference. There are other ways to do that, which is why we mostly don't use partials. One of them is just to drastically reduce the volume of training. You don't need to do five sets of squats in season. You might just do two. And even though they're full range of motion, they give you all the benefits, but the fatigue goes away real quickly because there just wasn't a lot of fatigue imposed. Yeah. So there, there are many, many other reasons why training through a more full range of motion is highly beneficial even in, than in season. But if I had to steel man the argument uh, of training with partials, I think that's probably one of the most advantageous things partials may be able to yield for you is not entering into those joint angles in which adaptations plus fatigue, the adaptations are great, but also like we're in season, we've already made most of our adaptations. It's not the time to get better. It's the time to show off, to perform. And thus we need something to just keep our muscle and strength on and we can't pay a very high fatigue cost. So that would be my yeah. take on that. I think one of the arguments that he would have that you're already familiar with is as you go below 90 degrees, you're kind of, you're at somewhat of a mechanical disadvantage and many people don't have the um, physical IQ to be able to maintain joint integrity throughout the you know the, the the lower back in particular and a person may lose integrity within the spine lose neutrality which comes into like another question of what is the value of uh, neutrality of the spine what is butt winking when a person's squatting is that safe to do uh, clearly it's safe it's a safe thing to do if you're just going into like a malasana or like a deep squat, like you're hanging out smoking a cigarette in Thailand, you're going to a squat, clearly you're going to go through spinal flexion and then yeah. come back into extension. It's a perfectly safe thing. Yeah. At what point does loading the spine as you're passing through that broad range of motion safe or unsafe? Or is there still contention in that conversation? Or what are your thoughts on, on butt winking? There's so much to say about that. If it's okay, just before we address the butt wink to, to address some of the other claims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So be very curious for Joel Seidman, who seems to train a lot of high-level pro athletes to claim that someone doesn't have the movement IQ to do something. I mean, if, if an all-pro quarterback can't do some kind of movement, then the rest of us are really, really fucked because this is some of the most athletic people in the world. They're also insanely strong, insanely hardy. Another thing is if you are training someone in a way that seeks to minimize injury as a first priority and thus sort of... Um, wrap around instead of intersecting through their fragility, you are really setting them up for a bad time on the football field or the basketball court or in an MMA ring because 
you are trying to make them anti-fragile in the gym. You are trying to challenge them in their weak points in a very controlled situation, which is the gym. If you think you're going to hurt your back squatting deep in a very controlled situation, you plan exactly the weights that you're doing. You plan exactly the range of motion. You plan exactly the cadence. You're not being thrown off balance. What is going to happen to your spine when an all pro offensive lineman or defensive lineman blasts you into the atmosphere? You're going to break into multiple, multiple pieces. The way you build resiliency in humans is you slowly, gently, gingerly over time expose them to their most weak positions and those positions become incrementally stronger. So the avoiding of positions of maybe not so neutral spine, maybe very deep joint angles for the knees and the elbows is precisely the opposite of what you would want to do for high-level athletes, the, who, for whom the one of the only reasons you are training them in the gym is to prepare them physically for the beating they are going to be taking. Like if you're going to tackle someone and they look like Harry Potter, you're like, that's it. This guy's toast. If you're going to tackle someone and they look like an all pro lineman or something and their muscles on top of muscles, and you've seen them bury 600 pounds on the squat for a set of five to the, to the floor, you're like, I, I don't really know how I'm going to hurt this man. <laughs> He's seen it all. There's nothing I can do to him he hasn't seen. I'm just going to bounce off his knee. You really want to train athletes to be more like that second thing than, well, Harry Potter. So yep. it strains the imagination to figure out how you rationalize. Like in the gym, we got to keep the athletes real safe. Anything that keeps you real safe in the gym is going to admit a level of fragility that you cannot possibly have on a, an American football field. For, we know those people already aren't that fragile. And if they somehow are that fragile, how is it that they're still in the game of football? You watch real football played at a high level. These guys like get rocketed up five feet in the air, bounce off their head, stand back up. And they're like, all right, next play, coach. You're like, Oh my God, how are you a real human being? There's nothing you're going to do to them in the gym with perfectly laminated rubberized weights that it's going to hurt them at all, unless you're doing completely insane stuff, like just bouncing out of the hole with reckless abandon. So I think really good technique and control to the best athletes in the world, you can teach them to hit every deep position that an Olympic weightlifter can, that a CrossFit mom can do in a CrossFit gym with kettlebells, like Cross is just very simple, philosophical, taking it back a step. Who is more fragile, all pro quarterback or Brenda from accounting who does two CrossFit workouts a week? Brenda's yeah. more fragile. There's no debate on that. How come Brenda's CrossFit coach has her squatting a you know, 30K kettlebell in a goblet squat, ass to ankles for sets of 10, and we're like not letting the all pro quarterback do that? That just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like telling a race car driver like, hey, we're going to get you in this roller coaster that little kids are on. You got to make sure it doesn't hurt your back, all right? He's like, do you know what I do for a living? I can fall asleep in a roller coaster. So already out of the gate, and it's just real tough to swallow that pill, you know? And I'm, I'm not trying to be like very cynical or anything like that. It's just, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's, it, it really does strain, strain the imagination. But to, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. oh, go on. Well, as I say, it, it seems, it seems like that it, it becomes an issue anytime you create some umbrella concept or rule or, you know, dogma for every, all 7 billion people across the planet to follow. Uh, because I think there's much more nuance in human anatomy and human movement, human biology and, and all things. And so I, I think that it would seem to make sense in my mind to maintain kind of respectfully nudging against one's boundaries, you know, one's, one's yeah. zone of proximal development. And for that, that may be for one person that may be 90 degrees, that may be 55 degrees. That may be like, it could be a lot of different degrees and there's a lot of different variants depending upon 
the orthopometry and like the individual capacity of 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 the person that you're working with and i and so but within that i'd be curious what it what would be the basic fundamental guideline that a person could follow as uh, with their own mechanics yeah. of their pelvis and their lower back and also pressure mechanics and and what's the relevance in pressure mechanics or, or being able to maintain intra-abdominal pressures or going through yeah, a yeah. squat or a deadlift or something of the sort like how does a person check themselves with that and what's the conversation around butt winking yeah great great question so there there are two things to say about that thing number one is as long as you work into something slowly and range of motion doesn't need to be the slow thing range of motion by itself cannot possibly hurt you because if we get you into a pool and you can butt wink all you want squat as deep as you want you cannot get hurt right if you do yeah. you're not out of sport and the rest of life is not for you you need to be in a wheelchair the whole time so and it's even health it's even healthy for you oh which, yes training. we're getting to that in just a second so yeah the loading is is the critical aspect loading and volume right so it's important for i think uh, many humans especially high level athletes to work slowly and that's the big principle number 1 slowly gradually work into using relatively challenging loads in very disadvantageous positions the yeah. human body is incredibly resilient there is no one size fits all rule as you as you just said a little bit ago of like if you hit this position you're just going to get hurt for sure that is nonsense and yeah. so we can actually get people to squat with completely rounded over backs with relatively high amounts of weight if they started with very little weight got comfortable in the position and then slowly gently worked up to bigger weights taking deloads active rest phases to let the tissue heals to uh, to come back and do it again that's principle number one so you actually do want to expose people through extreme ranges of motion and gently over time load them more and more and more until they're like george st pierre and there's you can't put them into any position in which they get hurt right top level jujitsu guys mma guys show me a position which an mma guy is going to get hurt in. well he's going to feel he's going to get into that position in the ring for sure and so you want him bulletproof and probably most athletes a big factor of their training in the gym is to expose them to ranges of motion that even aren't even probabilistic for them yeah. to enter into their sport. You want that extra, extra. Like the and, reason and we have like a, a, a child, yeah, a child totally, and an MMA fighter, totally, like, yeah, hundred yeah. percent, and yeah. and it, it totally, yeah, it's how you 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 don't want to raise your children to be fragile on purpose, and you don't want to do that yeah. with athletes. The, the reason that a, a tank has you know fifteen inches of armor on the front isn't so that it can try to take tank shells to the front and be like, ah, whatever, we don't even have to worry about that tank shooting at us. It's, it's just in case, right? Just in case. And luckily a shell bounces off a little sideways and the crew doesn't get hurt. The gun can still fire. Same thing for athletes. You want more strength and resiliency than you will even see in your sport so that you can just execute your sport and not have to worry about getting hurt. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you approach limit loads, very, very high loads in very vertically loading spinal movements, having a lordotic position in the lower back, uh, especially in the lumbar vertebrae, there is some good conjectural reasoning that uh, the herniations of the intervertebral discs could be um, increased in probability. And if a herniation occurs posteriorly, which is where your nerve roots are, bad things can happen. You know, disc shoots into your spinal nerves. You can no longer feel your butthole or something like that, or your legs don't work, et cetera, et cetera. Pain, sciatica, so on and so forth. 
If, on the other hand, you have an excessive arch in your back, the excessive uh, lordosis of your spine, not kyphosis, then potentially you can also herniate your nerve vertebral discs, but they would hurt and uh, they would herniate anteriorly into a, into the anterior collateral ligament, which is like you could probably shoot a, a gun at that thing and it wouldn't break. It's insanely thick. Also, there's nothing in front of it that can be damaged by an intervertebral disc. It would be an asymptomatic herniation, which most herniations, by the way, almost all are asymptomatic. You, right now, you probably have a crap load of herniated discs you don't even know about because sure. nobody lost, yeah. nobody found. So if we have a choice, it's probably it probably behooves us to avoid a huge degree of spinal flexion under very limit loads, sets of three, sets of two, sets of one, with very well-trained athletes in squats and deadlifts. There is an exception to that. First, it is conjectural that these are bad. The conjecture is very strong, but not 100%. There's not a ton of research to back this up, direct empirical research. Secondly, if an athlete has been in positions before regularly in their training where they are kyphotic under heavy loads, then they're probably really, really well adapted to that. And the probability of injury may not be as low as if they were lordotic or neutral, but probably yeah. much lower than you would expect if they just always were in a tight back position. And then Some they of the all of a sudden- Some in the world. Say that again? Some of the best deadlifters in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that flex position. Absolutely. It's and actually more mechanically advantageous. No, definitely. In, in some ways. It goes against the, the definitely concept of maintaining perfect. Exactly. You know, a subtle Lordotic. Exactly. In, now, in there, there could be a bit of a selection bias there, a survivorship bias, whereby like the reason they are the best deadlifters in the world is because they rolled the dice on this very dangerous technique and they just haven't gotten hurt yet. They just have incredible yeah. genetics. And if you apply that to all the pro athletes you're training, you're just going to toast half of them. And then that's bad business. And it's terrible from a humanistic perspective of like, well, I did something intentionally injurious to you and sorry, you didn't make it. You know, we're not doing the Bulgarian weightlifting team selection process here where hundred people enter, five people go to the Olympics, 95 people end their careers. So yeah. there is a nuanced conversation to have about that. But at the same time, that conversation sits on the bedrock of fundamentally with, with, with what to regular people look like very heavy weights, professional athletes should be competent in every single range of motion that you could essentially hypothesize by doing the compound barbell lifts, mostly doing rings, doing gymnastic stuff, doing CrossFit kind of movements that take their bodies into extreme joint angles and over time load those more and more so they can become really, really resilient and difficult to hurt. And they get a ton of strength and power out of that. And they use that directly in their sport. So the, the, uh, I would say this, the babying of athletes, the treating the athletes like, oh my God, they're going to get injured in the gym is the wrongest and most backwards place in which to do that. It is, it is comical and absurd. You're going to let a guy take tackles in practice, but you won't let him do a full knee bend squat in the gym. The injury rate between those two things is orders of magnitude different. And the gym is what prepares you to be hardy out on the field. The, the ROI for getting into progressive uh, overloading positions in the gym is insanely high. And the ROI on getting into dangerous positions on the field of practice and play is irrelevant because you have to do it anyway. But you, 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 you're going to take tackles in the game. You can't avoid that. So you might as well take the very controlled environment of the gym and over time progressively make it really, 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 really tough. So when guys are training people in the gym that are pros, they go, oh, well, we want to avoid the shoulder angle because it'd be bad for the shoulders. If there is a pre-existing injury condition that we have to avoid for rational reasons, I love it. Absolutely. That's just good policy. But if they're healthy, which almost all these people are, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're doing is, the opposite is, of what we want. Is the the is it more of like a, a conversation of pressure regulation with going through a a squat or a deadlift or something of the sort and one's capacity to maintain 
adequate intra-abdominal pressure and also what is intra-abdominal pressure um, yeah, yeah. And, and what's the value of that. Sure. And is that the challenge if you start off and you, you, know, you, you set your pelvis and you create pressure and you drop down and suddenly you go from what was, you know, quote unquote neutral spine to suddenly deeper lordotic flexion? Yeah. Does that adjust something with pressure regulation, which potentially could compromise the spine? Like what's happening there with pressure? Intra-abdominal pressure is essentially when you breathe in and bear down on your core and it raises the pressure all around the spinal column and especially anteriorly to it through their, through their gut. Mm-hmm. And um, that can stabilize the spine and that can allow you to, if there's a neurological feedback mechanism, whereas when your body feels a lot of intra-abdominal pressure, you can actually generate more force through your legs. And that's yeah. a really good thing. And so if you're endeavoring to lift very heavy weights, learning how to generate intra-abdominal pressure through the Valsalva maneuver is a very good idea. At the same time, uh, you know, if you're using the kind of loads that you typically would need intra-abdominal pressure for, and you lose pressure, the probability of you getting hurt goes up quite a bit. But if you've never been using intra-abdominal pressure, you will simply not be able to lift the kinds of loads that would put you in danger. And on the field of play or on the mat, wherever you compete, whatever sport you do, you're not going to have high intra-abdominal pressure when you're asked to exert high forces. The guy coming at you from left field, tackling you off to the side, you didn't even see him. He didn't give you a warning. The wrestler that shoots towards your legs and you have to sprawl, you didn't get a chance to bear down before that happened. So you have to build resilience in the gym that is so high that even when you are asked to impose great forces on yourself or they are imposed against your will, that you're not someone who just is completely without intra-abdominal pressure, totally frail, which is why regular people and competitive lifters can benefit relatively greatly from lifting with lifting belts. Professional athletes have to have a nuanced relationship with the lifting belt. Yes, sometimes it's a good idea to put so much weight on your back or in your hands that you need a lifting belt and you can benefit from one. But at the same time, maybe that's not something to do super often or at least not all the time because you want to be able to build the kind of strength that doesn't require any supportive equipment whatsoever. And then you're really strong in the way that is perfectly matching what you need in the real world, which is strength without any supportive equipment at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that that was a big transition for me discovering that a weightlifting belt wasn't actually there for support. It was there for feedback and it's there to, to educate you, to create the feedback for you to create your own support from the inside out. If, if you know what you're doing, this, that's great. Yeah. Otherwise it yeah. just becomes a crutch where you're like, I lift more with this and I put it on and I lift more. <laughs> that's it. You learn nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so that so that transitions into something that I, I'm really enamored by and interested in are, are the, the the phases of contraction, not just that they exist, uh, but how to leverage them for specific uh, goals or outcomes. You know, so the concentric phase compared to the eccentric phase, compared to isometric, compared to whatever other iterations of phases of movement may exist. How does one? leverage the phases of movement for optimal? I think the way this is a very variable question. It's all, all dependent on what your your goal is. Uh, so for hypertrophy to start, but then I'd also like to explore strength. I'd like to explore speed and just generally like giving people uh, a general guide on how to understand how, the, how they can optimize the way that they move weight as opposed to just be satisfied with the fact that they're moving weight. Great. Yeah, I can answer that question. We just uh, recorded a YouTube video. No, we didn't record it yet. I uh, wrote the script for a YouTube video. We'll record soon for the RP Strength YouTube channel in which I actually talk about cadence. And that cadence has to do with it, how fast you do in the different training, the different phases of movement. So for hypertrophy, we have some decent reasons to believe. It's not a bulletproof argument, but it's decent. It's our best idea, I think, as a scientific and fitness community that 
the eccentric phase, the lowering uh, phase, the uh, simultaneous contraction of the muscle while it's being lengthened is probably at least somewhat disproportionately effectual for hypertrophy induction than all the other phases, than concentric and isometric. I want to take a moment and share one of the only supplements that I brought with me on my last trip. I was away for a month and I brought a month supply of AG1. It's something that I took every single morning. I've been taking it every morning for the last couple of years. Something that I heard about originally through Andrew Huberman and gave it a try and I really dig it. The reason I like it is it is an all-in-one stop to get your vitamins, minerals, and also probiotics in the morning. So if you are lugging around a bunch of supplements like I have historically, this is a great way to lighten your load. It also tastes delicious. One of the things that I do is I put it in a blender with some ice. I blend it up and it just tastes incredible. Sometimes I'll add a little electrolytes in there as well, and I feel great. My mind feels sharp afterwards, and it is an amazing asset to bring with you traveling. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and also get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do is go to drinkag1.com slash align. That's drinkag1.com slash align. Hope you guys enjoy. I want to take a moment and share a free resource with y'all to sort out your movement that is starting the first free week of the Align Method online program where you get a thorough movement assessment to establish what is your personal movement baseline. And then on top of that, we share fundamental mobility techniques that will make a massive difference in your own personal practice. If you do any type of stretching or yoga or foam rolling or resistance band training or training in general, you want to get the most out of your body. These are must know mobility techniques. And then it finishes with a sit rise challenge. So you can test yourself and see how effectively you get up and down off of the ground. That is the first week of the Align Method Online program. It's a six week program. You can start the first week at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. And with that, you will also join the free Align community where there's over 3,000 other members in there. So I pop in there each day, totally free. The first week is totally free. And then if you don't love the idea of continuing on with the six-week program, then you can cancel anytime. So check us out over at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. Is that some myosin actin latching onto each other and you're like stripping the bonds kind of thing? Like what, what, what yeah, is Yeah, maybe. The, That's one of the hypotheses of how that works. Yeah. So a really interesting thing about the eccentric phase, some, some hypotheses as to why it's so good for hypertrophy is there may be some kind of very deep uh, myofibrillar damage that's done by actually ripping off myosin heads and then they have to be reconstructed. And it might be a really big signal to the local musculature that like, you need to get bigger. This is not something we can continue to have happen. Right. Maybe there's that. It's hypothetical. There's some research to support it, but it's not overly convincing. The other thing is that the neural output, the nervous system drive, which is a, a high cause of fatigue and it takes effort, relative to how much force is imposed on the muscle is actually very low in the eccentric contraction versus the others. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that the eccentric contraction doesn't require you to try very hard, but it imposes a great deal of force on the muscle relative to how hard you're trying. And so if we think that tension is an important mm -hmm. element 
of hypertrophy, which it definitely is. That's not really up for debate. And we know that how hard you try, how much the nervous system is saying fire, 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 fire is a limiting factor on total fatigue and how much training you can get done in any week, month, or year, then a contraction type that gives us really high forces for not as much neural signaling as other contraction types seems to be like a pretty interesting candidate for a really, uh, I'll put it, I'll put it mildly, not the phase of training you want to skimp on if hypertrophy is the goal. You know what I mean? It's like, maybe it's not everything, but it sure is a, a good thing. I, kind of like first impressions when going out dating people. We know first impression might not be everything. We might even think it's overrated, but we know it's not unimportant, right? So if you're like, ah, first impression, whatever, you're like, ooh, ooh, maybe, maybe care just a little more about that. So when you're training for hypertrophy, you don't have to slowly lower the weights for 16 years while you die of old age, but maybe any kind of control to begin with. So don't just let the weights drop. Like guys will bench press and they'll just drop the weights and bounce off. Probably unwise. From an injury perspective, also not so wise, but hypertrophy, the weights aren't that heavy. You probably won't get hurt, but you're just missing out on uh, a type of contraction, which if we had to surmise that the three different contraction types have differential effects on hypertrophy, this would be our biggest bet as the one that has the most. And it might only be like 55% better, or sorry, 5% uh, better than the others, 55-45, right? But even that, we want to make sure we focus on it. So anything that slows the fall from gravity is a good idea. And also maybe up to two or three seconds, and even sometimes more, of that eccentric phase is probably a good idea. So that's the eccentric phase as it relates to hypertrophy. And an interesting thing about hypertrophy in addition is just two more things to say on that. When you're in a lengthened muscle position, the deep stretch, we have now very good evidence and good reasoning to believe that that position is extra hypertrophic. It causes muscle growth when you're in that position. And so taking a pause and having an isometric contraction in that lengthened position is at least not bad advice. And it might be very good advice. And rushing the pause can just ever so mildly increase your injury risk. And so if you have to stick in the pause for an extra second, we know that when you're there, it probably causes a decent amount of growth and it might a little bit reduce injury risk. I mean, geez, that, that's kind of hitting the, the gold mine of what we want. So control decentric, sometimes, often maybe, pause deep in the hole for a second or two. And then concentric speed has been studied pretty extensively in hypertrophy training. And so long as that the entire repetition, eccentric plus asymmetric plus concentric, doesn't take longer than nine seconds, which is a very, very long time for a rep, the hypertrophy outcomes seem to be roughly the same. So how fast do you go up on the concentric probably just doesn't matter a ton for hypertrophy. That's mm -hmm. not the same thing for strength or power or speed. But for yeah. hypertrophy, definitely control eccentric. Consider taking a, a slight pause or a, a nice deep long pause at the bottom. And then if you want to rock it up, hey, sweet, let's bro it out. High five uh, and let's do it. Or if you want to come up gently, no problem at all. That's probably also a relatively similar effect. Yeah. And so for sake uh, of folks that are interested in, in like going deeper into this, would it be okay to explore what actually is happening when you say hypertrophy and also is there is there any relevance to the concept of hyperplasia the idea of like hypertrophy is getting the i think it's the myofibrils are getting larger hyperplasias that are actually multiplying yeah. i think a lot of this stuff is theoretical uh the concept yeah. of even like what a muscular contraction is a sliding filament theory like 
the idea of what's happening at such a microscopic animated level, like, like not being a cadaver. Uh, it's interesting to think of, of how much of it is just, we're kind of, um, just, it's still theoretical. Yeah. You know, so as we're talking about this stuff, like it's like, it seems solid, but in fact, it's not as solid as it, as it comes out in the definitions that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So the, the, uh, hypertrophy is just a very scientific and fancy way of saying muscle growth. That's yeah. it. And, uh, muscle growth may be the overarching concept, and there may be two ways to get it. One is hypertrophy, where the individual muscle cells get bigger. Mm. The other may be hyperplasia, where the individual muscle cells multiply, and then there's more of them. Mm. So we know that hyperplasia occurs in other tissues of the body. Every organ essentially undergoes hyperplasia. Um, if your liver is in poor health and it starts to have to grow to make up for its inefficiencies, it absolutely multiplies its cells. They don't just grow. Fat cells, unfortunately, do hyperplasia real, real well. So you get many, many, many more of them, but they also hypertrophy. So a fat cell will get to a certain size. At some point, the myonuclear domain is at its peak. The nucleus essentially can't communicate. It's like if you have um, one post office for a city the size of New York in City Hall, it doesn't doesn't work. Like right. The trucks just take five hours to get to the boroughs and they can't get there on time. So at some point, the cell stops growing and then any further fat gain is through cell multiplication. And the two processes kind of happen at the same time, but in a, in a sort of fluid manner. Hmm. With muscle growth, it's been a big mystery for a long time if hyperplasia actually occurs. In some animal models, it's been pretty well shown. In some bird models, it's been shown. We just don't know if it happens in humans. The smart money uh, is probably not. But that probably not is like a 70-30 or a 65-35, probably not. And again, if you're uncomfortable with nuance and uncertainty, science ain't it. Uh, religion's dope. They have all sorts of things to say they're very sure about. So that's just the real world. Now, yeah. the good news is the sliding filament theory, the sliding filament theory is, is that you were using the term theory as we use it in the theory of evolution and the theory of gravitation. Hmm. There is not a debate that muscles do not contract by actin myosin interaction and filament sliding is the result of that. I think it's the specifics within it. The specifics are actually also very well understood, profoundly well understood. Electron microscopy, labeling studies. Uh, we Now, back in the 1950s, it very was, uh, I would say, little T theory, not capital T theory. I, I This is pedantic. I'll go on this rant for just a second. You can loop me out of it. Almost everyone uses the term theory wrong. Theory yeah. is a highly interconnected framework of facts and is very well supported by evidence. Gravitation, evolution, sliding filament. Though sliding filament just doesn't get the love that it deserves. You know, everyone's debating evolution and flat earthers even debate gravity, but no one cares about our sliding filament. <laughs> um, when people say, you know, I have a theory about why Brenda and Sean broke up. Um, it's a hypothesis. That's actually right. what they're saying. So right. it's not the sliding filament hypothesis, though originally it was. Theory means it's been confirmed to the point of like, if we don't think this is true, then my hand isn't in front of my face either. You know, mm. very high degree of certainty. Mm. That being said, it's we don't have a unified theory of muscle growth quite yet. We have a, a variety of hypotheses and a variety of models, which are hypotheses connected together with some decent understanding of their relationships. But we don't have a theory because we, we're not sure if hyperplasia occurs. 
in in vivo in humans in conventional training some people have there's one funny little myth that uh, which actually a philosopher and economist thomas Sowell would call it a notion uh, notion is not even a hypothesis because it's not phrased in a way that it can be refuted it doesn't formally make something it just says like oh this guy has to be true and there's a notion that uh if you take growth hormone then you will have hyperplasia and i just I've searched for a long time for any evidence of that whatsoever, and I'm pretty sure someone just made it up. So we don't know if it's hyperplasia or not. We know for sure it's at least hypertrophy. But I'll say this, since you're, you're, I can tell talking to you, you're a big fan of digging in a little deeper than most, even to call it muscle hypertrophy is a little bit illusory. Why? Because there are muscle cells of generally two types. There are muscle cells that have a nucleus, that have the contractile material around them. They're connected to the rest of the muscle. They produce force. And then when you train them, they grow bigger and you stop training and smoke a lot of cigarettes, they get smaller. But cigarettes are so fun to smoke. I digress. Aren't they suggested to be correlated with increase in testosterone or is that just something that Tate says? What specifically? Nic the muscle size? Isn't there some correlation of, of nicotine and upregulation of testosterone or maybe like available testosterone? Have you seen the, I, it, I'm not available to that pub, literature. I do know that nicotine causes a reduction it. in blood flow to your muscles and all this uh, other stuff. And the stimulant effects directly counteract the relaxed sort of state you want to be in to grow muscle. So right. I think Andrew Tate just uh, likes to smoke cigarettes <laughs> I take, and or I say ridiculous things that uh, are yeah. attention grabbing. So, yeah. yeah, I probably uh, take a little too much from Andrew Tate. Yes, on I, I would probably endeavor to take almost nothing from Andrew Tate, <laughs> except for maybe like how to imprison prostitutes against their will and sell them in Bulgaria or something like that. That he's yeah. a very good Alleg at. Allegedly. 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 <laughs> so, uh, okay. So there is another type of muscle cell called a satellite cell. And the satellite cell, as the name implies, sits next to in, in between a bunch of other actual muscle cells that do the work. And it's really just a nucleus and it's got the whole cell membrane around it, but it's a nucleus and a couple of myofibrils and it just sits there. Eh, it doesn't really do much of anything. When cells get big enough that they have trouble growing anymore because of that New York City post office myonuclear domain problem, as training gets really hard and you get bigger and bigger, satellite cells start to become uh, activated. They go from the dormant state to an active state, and then they start to accrete proteins at a very high rate and build out their contractile structures and become real, actual moving cells that contribute. And satellite cells, if you think about it, technically that's not hyperplasia because nothing's dividing, but you got new cells coming online, contributing to yeah. the overall size of the muscle. It's not quite hypertrophy in the sense of like all the muscle cells you have right now are the only ones you'll ever have and no new cells are added. Because if you look at it from the zoomed out perspective, you're like, well, what about all these new fibers? Like, well, they were too tiny to see because they were originally satellite cells. Now they're bigger. So it's a little bit nuanced in that regard. And that's a big deal for getting really, really big is you'll have to recruit more and more of your satellite cells to activate them and turn, a, turn them on. There's been some literature suggests that extremely difficult training or training that takes you very close to your limits is what most recruits satellite cells to wake up, activates them, and it gets them to be real big boy cells that actually contribute to muscle strength and, and, and muscle size. And satellite cells, are they, could they be, um, they're not quite stem cells, right? Because they're they're specific to muscles, so it's not like they have the capacity to turn to like a liver cell. So I think that I think the term I looked it up recently. This isn't something I just have in my my mind, but it's myogenic 
precursor cell. Correct. Yeah, so they're not there's, pluripotent. So they're not pluripotent. Yeah, they yeah, can't but do it all. But so 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 within that, that's kind of interesting. We can exogenously, you know, jab ourselves with up with a bunch of of pluripotent stem cells. Uh, is there some way to manipulate or augment or upregulate um, or whatever the proper language would be to get more satellite cells? within the muscle tissue is that a, is that a, a reasonable question very very reasonable question and nothing i'm aware of yet but this these aren't lines of research that are very active currently um mm -hmm. there are many ways to trigger muscle growth the most one of the the most promising lines of research is on a molecule called myostatin and it turns yeah. out muscle growth works a little counterintuitively in the body than you might expect it turns out your physiology is actually very ready at all times to make you extremely jacked. And there is actually a molecule that your DNA makes called myostatin. It is exactly what you think it does according to its Latin name, myomuscle statin stop or block. It blocks muscle growth from occurring. And after training your myostatin levels for a few days will fall off and then come back up. And that's where muscle growth occurs. That's not the only mechanism that grows muscle, but it seems to be an important one. We also know that when we chemically turn off the myostatin genes in a variety of different kinds of animals, this has been done in mice, it's been done hilariously through an interesting uh, inherited genetic accident in greyhounds. If you Google myostatin greyhound, it's the funniest picture in the world, is that greyhounds are scared of everything and they have these big eyes and they're adorable. And then it's this absolutely jacked dog with this still the same. It doesn't know it's jacked at all. It's just a greyhound. Like the, the, cows, the, cows, the cows as well, right? And lastly, cows, cows, yeah, which is also yeah. something that wasn't engineered. The Piedmontese cattle uh, just have that uh, genetic anomaly where they don't make myostatin. And I'm talking about like cows that are like roughly two to 3% body fat and the most muscle you've ever seen on an animal. The thing is their muscles have been studied extensively and, and they're a little bit maladaptive. They don't generate as much force as you would expect. Um, and they limit the animal's range of motion significantly because these are like the Ronnie Coleman's and Dorian Yates's of cattle. That being said, it seems like there's an off switch to muscle growth more than there is an on switch. And if we could just take that off switch of muscle growth and just pull it out of the wall or turn, take the off switch and shut it down for a while, the default state of physiology is for muscle to grow, 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 grow. So hopefully in the next five to 10 years, that's my usual big thing I say on interviews like this, five, five to 10 years, everything will be great. A little Pollyanna attitude, but maybe in five, 10 years, we'll have reliable modulators of myostatin. And first of all, they can essentially cure muscular dystrophy or treat it to a hundred percent. But also for all of us addicts that, you know, want to be super jacked, uh, the myostatin pill will make every steroid wildly obsolete instantly. The interesting thing about that is it'll grow all of your skeletal muscle. So like your face will start to look more like mine, which is a hideous curse, I assure you. But uh, every muscle is going to get jacked. Your thumb is going to look a little different. And uh, but if and, and we're not even so sure that if you train 
your muscles. They'll get any bigger than if you just turn off the myostatin, right? So like training may become something that's pointless because if you can just turn off myostatin for a few weeks, you gain all the muscle you'd have gained training anyway. And then you do whatever sport you do, you do your mobility drills, and then you have, you look like a pro bodybuilder, except you never lift weights. Um, is that going to make you strong? No, other things are required, the nervous system, et cetera. You need the connective tissues to be stronger, but it certainly is very promising that that we can unlock that code. And and we know it's not a complex code. It's actually just, just, just one locus that we'd have to flip off in humans. And as long as it keeps people healthy, it's okay. We have good reason to believe we have a few humans on record that are being studied that were accidentally born with a myostatin deficiency. There were like pictures of them you can find on the internet when they're babies and they have like little baby triceps. It's, it's really, really trippy. And so far they're all alive and healthy and everything's great. We also know that generally mice and cows and greyhounds that have myostatin deficient, they don't have a ton of health problems or anything like that. And it's, it's funny because the Piedmontese cattle seem actually very, um, they're not even very angry. So he's this huge bull with all these muscles. And he's just like chewing grass. You can come up and pet him and he misunderstood. doesn't care. I yeah. want one is what I'm trying yeah. to say. I want, I want to get back to, I want to get to back to the muscular contraction stuff. But, uh, first is an interlude question. The anabolic benefits of, uh, butthole sunning. What are your, what are your thoughts? I mean, maximum forget about biostatic. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing that, uh, gamma radiation on your asshole won't do for you. It's going to realign your chi. Your love life's going to yeah. get better. Yeah. I agree. Have you tried um, butthole sunning? Oh, come on. Based off of our last conversation, of course. Uh, 100%. Like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew we had something in common. Come on. Um, all right. So um, hypertrophy, if goal is just you want to get more jacked, more gains, um, the uh, negatives. Negatives are a big be, deal. Yeah. Just at least, at least deal. don't skimp on them. So what is a negative? What's happening there? It's just, I mean, well, yeah. What should we do with that? What's the recipe? Just, yep, one to three seconds, maybe more. On the negative, pause in the hole for a little bit, come back up at any speed. Mm. Then, then there's strength, which has a, a with, bit with of a added with, with, with added weight. Well, yeah, no, this is all assuming adjusting. you have a barbell in your hands or whatever. Yeah, this is all with weight. So lighter weight in the concentric, the, the contraction, like going up phase, and heavier weight in the eccentric. Oh, I see. You're asking about eccentric accentuated language. loading. Yeah, that might be, be the wrong wrong language. That's been studied. I just call them negatives. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Overloaded negatives. Overloaded um, negatives. Yeah, yeah. That's been studied, and it has some promise. It def- definitely has some promise. The problem is, is outside of using an electrical machine of some kind, an electric motor that can detect when you're in each phase or not. Um, I'm actually currently collaborating with a friend of mine well, uh, in order to help uh, make a machine like this. But... Um, you can't do it with free weights because how the fuck would that work? You know, uh, you lower the 40 down to the rack, pick up the 25, pick it up, but then you do like the, pr- prison style, r- right? Know, yes. Have somebody pulling on the thing. Oh, I thought we were talking about a- adult activities. <laughs> same thing. A lot of pulling. You're still in prison. All the, yeah. all the same stuff. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I would say that it's potentially worthwhile to experiment if you can, if you have access to the kind of equipment and setup that does some e- e- accentuated eccentric loading. But I think yeah. just controlling the eccentric is a good rule of thumb to do kind of all the time. Yeah. How about, how about isometrics a la Bruce Lee slash lots of smart people? Are you able to get more, I think maybe the term might be neural adaptation. I think you can get ne- more neural drive if that's the correct language, but you're able to recruit more from my understanding, you're able to push more force through isometric yeah. and actually going through the full range of motion. Totally. Absolutely. The next question would be why, why would you want to do that? Like what is it? Get s- 
Well, I mean, that's exactly. So what are your goals? So if the goal were hypertrophy, yes, no. If the goal were strength. Okay. So if the goal, okay. Why, why definitely not for hypertrophy? You're exacting a huge amount of nervous system fatigue on Mm. precisely the phase of muscle contraction that has hypothetically the least to do with hypertrophy. Okay. So, so what if I'll go mm-hmm. ahead. Yeah. A concentric would be a phase that's probably ranked number two in terms of its importance to hypertrophy. Inter- interesting. And by a small margin, relative to eccentric, and then isometric is probably dead last. Now it might be like a 55, 45, 40 kind of relationship. Eccentric, concentric, isometric, as far as relative proportions, or I should have used percents, 110, 190. It could be that close. But yeah. pouring tons of your effort into the isometric probably is not the best stimulus to fatigue ratio to generate hypertrophy. What if your goal is strength and what if your goal is speed? Yeah, definitely not strength because strength is exhibited through a range of motion. If you're yeah. testing isometric strength, that's how you test it. How hard you can pull on a force plate attached to a bar that doesn't move. Yes, training isometrics is just sport specific. At that point, it's task specific. If your goal is strength, then you should be moving weights because strength is tested usually by moving weights. If someone asks you to squat as much as you can, you can do all kinds of cool isometric stuff, but you'll be asked to actually do eccentric and concentric phases during that time. And thus they are very, very worthwhile to do, probably should occupy most of your training. For speed, doing isometrics is really, really a bad idea. Uh, well, not so much a bad idea, but an idea is just like a a solution looking for a problem because we know how to train for speed and the specificity principle strikes again, you got to move fast and isometrics is no movement at all. It's the slowest possible movement. Well, unless you're moving backwards, I guess I just hmm. moved myself just there. Interesting. I, I would, I would <clears throat> wonder. So what about like Bruce Lee? He was pretty fast. And from my understanding of reading his, his books and kind of seeing his videos and his general training modality, that was one of the things that he implemented was a, just a bar and a chain. And he would go through isometrics in various different ranges in my, my lack of kind of a scientific based mind yeah. and kind of more just like you know, intuitive. It seems like there could be something there. Yeah, I would yeah. think that if you could increase neural recruitment, then that could translate to a greater, you know, I don't know, blast of energy yeah, in the yeah, form yeah. of like, sure. like be able to move move quickly from there. Yeah, I know that's not very unscientific way, of, very like bro, very vibe. bro, yeah, bro, bro vibe way of explaining that. But it's see, like, what about Bruce? What was going on with that? I have no idea, and and, and also nobody else does because Bruce is like one dude from China at one point. Mm. Uh, We don't know how fast he was because I don't believe that's ever been objectively measured by any kind of scientific instrument. Mm. Um, We don't know how fast he was training his way versus if we trained him in like, you know, something more modern, like an East German paradigm or something like that. We know he wasn't fast enough to break any world records in speed. We do know that. Uh, Didn't translate to running. That's very likely. And we know also that most of your ability to move really quickly is genetic, probably something like 90% of it. Um, So most of the reason we can be sure that Bruce Lee was very fast was uh, genetics. And the rest of most of it was that he practiced moving fast, which is the critical thing to do if you want to be fast, practice fast movement. Yeah. Is there a theoretical convincing rationale for doing isometrics to make you faster than training for speed itself? No. 
um, because specificity is real tough to argue against. Um, and so if you're moving fast as the goal, but your training doesn't even move you slow, it moves you not at all. It's very, very curious how that would be the best form of transfer. Now, I'll say this to, to the credit of, of the argument you're proposing here is going real hard on isometric and then relaxing good to make you faster when you decide to use that for movement than not training at all? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Is it going to make you faster than moving fast? Gee whiz. That would overturn 80 years of sports science observation and experiment and every athlete that's ever been good at stuff. So yeah. Bruce Lee, the- and, and, and another quick point, if, if I may, yeah. uh, sample size of one is um, just doesn't teach us much of anything at all. You know, mm. uh, if, if we were really serious about that, we would be surmising, I'll give you a sample size of two. When people talk like this, why do, why do they talk like that? D- does that? Does that weird little voice pitch um, make you a dominant athlete? Because I got Mike Tyson and I got Ronnie Coleman. What do you got? Right. That's a good point. It would be nonsense, right? It would be like, this is ridiculous, of course. So Bruce Lee did all kinds of weird stuff. Some of it might have absolutely made him better and was something we can learn from. And some of it might just be like, that's just like weird shit Bruce Lee did. And it's just what, like, what do you what do you think about I I don't I'm not, I don't know what the term is. I don't think it's it's not what is coactivation potentiation? This is what I, what I, what I, the thing I'm th- the thing I'm thinking of is is the idea of loading a exercise or loading yeah. a movement. Say you're um, I don't know, running. And so the goal is to run faster. And before you run, you load your maybe your ankles up with resistance bands and you push through the running motion yeah, yeah. against resistance bands. And then yeah. that allows you to potentially be able to recruit better, have yes. a little bit more better like neural recruitment yes. to be able to run faster. Yes. What do you think about that? Because that would maybe a little bit go against the idea of just run faster. Totally. Yes. Post-activation potentiation, PAP. That's what it is. Yeah. Not yeah. coactive. Post-activation. Totally. Thank totally. you. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's definitely something that works. And uh, it's basically like really wakes your nervous system the hell up to perform mm-hmm. a speed task mm-hmm. or a repetition task or a strength task after you do a task that's very close to maximum. But, uh, and, and that absolutely does have some utility. It's uh, rarely is it best to do it with isometrics. Ideally, you want post-activation potentiation to be accomplished through a very similar movement done with more resistance. Um, so the ankle weights on running makes, makes a little bit more sense. What might make more sense is putting on a heavy vest and doing the first couple steps in a sprint. And then when you really start going, take the vest off. And another thing is because you're activating, sprinting is mostly the result of vertical and horizontal forces coming from the hip and not a whole lot from happens at the ankle. The, the ankle is mostly passive. It's like a spring at that point. Uh, doing a heavy squat, heavy double uh, before uh, getting into your uh, sprinting. You, so you warm up for sprinting. You do a, a warm up a little bit for the squat, heavy double, do a few more warm ups for the sprint, and then you're ready to go. And that might confer some advantages. Yeah. The advantage is small and it's very timing based. So it doesn't even work at like Olympic competition because how the fuck do you get a barbell out into the stands to do, you know, barbell work before a sprint? And also if, you know, the, the organized, the organizers of the event are behind time and the heats are off and then you got to go early or late, there's no way you're timing that properly. So it's a cool thing to do in the laboratory in, uh, and maybe a good thing to do in training, but in competition, it, it, it usually just doesn't, um, it's just not, um, uh, it doesn't fit well. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be my curiosity if I wonder if there could be some conversation around the post-activation potentiation 
uh, within to the slow it down to the degree of isometrics and definitely to really drive the shit out of that that hip into hip flexion and then suddenly you're like oh wow my legs like popping up off of the ground so that was kind of my suggestion totally. of the potential of isometrics being supported for sure and and they, they might be better than nothing but they might be worse than just doing a traditional warm-up and they because mm. also fatiguing uh and a different type of tasks so the task specificity is different and your nervous system has to kind of be like we just did this what the fuck are we doing now again it's like yeah. practicing spanish to warm up for speaking german like yeah. might get your nervous system wired and going but going kind of the wrong direction and it also has to compete with the dynamic post-activation potentiation which is like if you want to jump high jump really high with a loaded vest then take the vest off or sprint with a loaded vest that seems to check all the boxes of it requires more um, of your nervous system, but also is really, really, really task specific. So it might even be the better thing. You know, it's kind of like a, you know, a dish in which garlic salt fits really well. And someone's like, I really think it just should be salt. And you say, well, I think garlic salt is better. And they say, well, you're saying salt in general is bad for food. Like, no, 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 no. If you don't have garlic right. salt, having some salt is definitely better than not. But if you have garlic yeah. salt, then it's really the best. So. Yeah. It seems like with a lot of this stuff, it's just really important to be your own end of one experiment and be open to what feels good in your body and be able to explore these various different modalities and kind of ingest them, metabolize them, see what works and be able to fluently move through those different ones. Because there may be certain circumstances for your certain individuality yeah. and the exact task that you're doing that doesn't exactly relate over to the research. Definitely. And so the more a person knows, I think the more fluent a person will be in being able to leverage these tools in an, in an optimized way. Yeah, I think it's super important to start with the kind of the top two or three best ideas to do in any situation as science and good coaching practice over history has taught us. Mm -hmm. And then it's not just the one thing that just do this, this is the best, shut up, this is the only way it works. Instead of down to a thousand potential ways you could try to do things, maybe you're down to two or three and then yeah. try both or all three of them uh, and see which one in whatever context seems to work best in your particular situation. What about optimal sets? Thank you for letting me ask you all these, these um, it's, questions. It's the only the reason I'm here. <laughs> I, really, I really, yeah, but Can I you imagine if I refuse to answer them. <laughs> I think sometimes just like organic kind of exploratory conversation is, is easier. Sure, you know, of than, course. Than yeah. going through and being like extracting information. So yeah. I really greatly appreciate you taking oh, the time. My to pleasure. To I think you're great at asking questions. I, I really it's appreciate it. Um, so I, I, I'd like to just create some definition around um, sets and reps for people. Mm -hmm. sure. So if a person's mm -hmm. goal, leaning again, this is this is all categorical. You know, so if a person's looking for strength, that's not going to be necessarily hypertrophy. It's not going to be necessarily speed. And then some may look more or less like others uh, than you know, than others. Um, but sure. if leaning into hypertrophy specifically, what would the ideal set rep range be? Does it vary based off of exercise? Does it vary based off of person, age, sex? Yeah. You know, what, what's, what's, what's the ideal range for people? I just want to be on record that sex is great. It's so much fun. Yeah. What's, what's the ideal duration of sex? Oh yeah. That's another well, question. A fraction of a second. Get in, get out. That's <laughs> my, that's, that's, that's been my philosophy only, for years. Yeah. That's, that's the only thing I've ever really been able to accomplish, to, uh, explore. Yeah. <laughs> so, not the best sample set. So, um, we have sets, we have reps. We'll take reps first. Yeah. The number of reps you do in a set is really a question of, um, is the weight heavy enough? to stimulate enough tension perception by the 
molecular structures in your muscle fibers to get them to signal to cause muscle growth. We have a pretty decent amount of literature that anything even as low as 30% of your one repetition max in a given movement, if you take that set very close to failure, can stimulate just as much muscle growth as anything as hard as 1% of your one rep max. I'm sorry, 100% of your one rep max. So anything from something you can lift once to something you can lift like 30 times until you fail is going to robustly stimulate growth. And it's not true to say that if you do 32 reps of something and then fail, that you're going to get no growth out of it. It's it's a very gray area, but if it's like 50 reps, 60 reps, 70 reps, on average, you're going to get less growth per set if it's that light. So 30 is kind of our working rough top end, right? Um, on the bottom end, you can do singles, sets of one at your one rep max and grow muscle. Absolutely, you can stimulate growth. But the duration of the exposure of the muscles to tension is so small that the amount of total signal transduction that occurs and thus growth that the muscles are told to do, it just is not that high, right? And then- But it may be high from like a neural adaptation perspective. Yes, very much so. Yes, but also maybe not even from that. as, as, As impressive, perhaps. Uh, Totally. It could be getting really strong. uh, Totally. But even, even from that, you know, the, um, sets of three to six repetitions, uh, or what is challenging in three to six repetitions close, you know, something like 80 to 90% of your own rep max, they have a combination of enough force imposition to train the nervous system really well and enough repetitions per set that there's enough signal conveyed to actually do as much benefit as possible. Even if you're trying to get as strong as possible, most of your training should be in sets of three to six and not sets of one. Sets of one are relatively limited application. It's just showing off. But um, for hypertrophy, if you're doing less than roughly five reps per set, each set has so little signal, even though the signal fidelity is super high, that uh, you know the muscles don't grow as much as if you do at least five repetitions. So that kind of anchors us. Uh, the number of reps to do is recommended roughly five rep sets to roughly 30 rep sets. And there's kind of no really wrong answers between those. So if someone's like, what do you think? Sets of eight or sets of 20? Both probably work well. There are different contexts that are more nuanced in which one works better and one doesn't, that starts to be individual. It's based on the muscle. It's based on the movement. It's based on a lot of different stuff. And that yeah. we can get into if you'd like, but I'd, we can go to sets first and then t- and then maybe weave back to the hammer. I want to take a moment and share something that has been invaluable to my own personal health care. That is getting my blood work done and checking my specific biomarkers with Life Force. They're incredible because they have at-home phlebotomists. They come to you, which that's one of the biggest pain in the butts for me is like going and getting my blood somewhere. I don't want to do that. And then shortly after that, you get your results back and you can see exactly what is happening with you in their very easy to use user interface. Then you set up a call. It's absolutely free or it's a part of the membership uh, to speak with one of their functional medicine doctors. Uh, the gal that I talked to was incredible. I asked her every question I possibly could and she 
had amazing answers for everything. Uh, and then they offer you suggestions based off of your specific blood work, what is happening with you specifically, which is so important. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, and they go over lifestyle suggestions. They go over nutritional suggestions and then offer nutraceuticals as well as peptide therapy and hormone therapy. If that is something that is supportive for you, that is all stuff that you can talk to with them to see if that would be something that would make sense for you. Uh, I would always go for the low hanging fruit first, make sure that you are adjusting your lifestyle and your nutrition first. And then on top of that, there are some things that uh, sometimes it can be very supportive to start to supplement in an exogenous way. So these guys are fantastic. I've had an amazing experience. Their membership is just, it's something that's been invaluable in my life just to remove all of the guesswork from my nutrition as well as some lifestyle choices, make sure my sleep is good, make sure everything that I'm putting into my body is on point. And they're also measuring for optimization, not just average baseline. So I love these guys. I think they're invaluable. I think you guys will dig them and you can get $200 off of your membership by going to mylifeforce.com slash align. That's M-Y-L-I-F-E-F-O-R-C-E.com slash A-L-I-G-N. I implore anyone, get your blood work done, see what's happening with you, get a bird's eye view of your health and then start moving from there. Mylifeforce.com slash align. You guys are going to dig them. Well, so yeah, I, I think within that, as I'm, I'm thinking about this more uh, deeply than I, I have historically, um, which is uncomfortable. Uh, and I hate but, it. I hate it. <laughs> but it seems like so when we're like prefacing the conversation of sets and reps with all of like the time under tension and, you know, negatives or eccentrics or, you know, all of the different iterations of what we could make each repetition be like one person's rep could be vastly different than another person's rep. And so it seems like a, like a, maybe a more nuanced question would be something around like time under tension or something of the sort, because somebody could be doing a total dog shit kind of like, you know, Joel Seidman rep. I'm just joking. I, I think Joel's fine. I, I, you know, I'm actually looking forward to the conversation, but they could be doing like a, like a <laughs> dog shit rep. I have rep. to say in a recording because I have a guest coming up. I got it. No, I actually, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy everybody. I'm kidding. I'm you know, kidding. but they could be doing a, a, a dog shit rep. And that's very different than the person that went, yeah. they did a, a 25 second eccentric and they had their prison buddy wearing a jock strap, like pulling down against them. I was listening to your Mark Bell conversation recently. We were talking about jock strap. You know, so, so within that, those are very different things. So I wonder how much nuance should a person be thinking? What is, what is the perfect rep? Oh, we're, we're going in the other direction. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So, cause so we, okay. Sets and reps. What is the perfect, what is each rep the perfect rep for maximal hypertrophy look like yeah so something we touched on earlier control eccentric probably a pause in the bottom for a second or two and then any velocity on the way up but done in such a way that the target muscle is the limiting factor so if i'm trying to train quads in the squat and my idea of squatting is to go halfway down and then shoot my butt up and crank the weight with my back my quads are kind of getting spared a lot of the stimulus, not a lot of quad stuff going on. But if I go really deep and I come straight up pushing through my heels and feet, can maintaining a completely upright chest, then like my quads have to be 
the thing that goes. And it's especially good if as a lifter, especially a more advanced lifter, I'm tuned in to what my quads are doing and I know yeah. they're contracting like crazy and being ripped apart by tons of tension. And if I'm doing high repetitions in a movement, that muscle should be getting a huge burn. So like if you're doing bicep curls and your forearms are getting a crazy pump and burn, but your biceps are like, eh, it turns out a bunch of your forearm muscles actually cross the elbow joint they can be doing most of the flexion and your biceps aren't getting a ton of it. So that is important as well, but at least externally, it should look like you're using the muscle. And if you're going through especially a deep stretch, then every repetition starts to look really good. The next thing to ask is sets of five to 30 reps, but like I can do a set of five with a pencil. Am I getting strong or big? No, it has to be close to muscular failure maybe four, but more like three, two, one reps away from muscular failure or failure itself, or even going beyond failure where your body helps you lift the weight a little bit after, those tend to be really similar in a grand context for how much hypertrophy they cause. But if you're stopping every set 10 reps in reserve, each set doesn't stimulate much muscle and you'll end up having to do way more sets and it doesn't even matter what rep range you're training at. So for example, I'm sure you've seen this at gyms uh, all around. You'll have a guy who like, like, you know, 55 year old man who like read his phone between sets and he'll read his phone for five minutes. And he's just at the gym. Cause his doctor said like, Frank, you're going to die if you don't go to the gym. And then he does like the lat pull down. On, I forget who I was talking to. Was, uh, the, the lat pull down combo to tricep extension, not even an exercise on the pull down machine. Like, I don't know what that is. And they'll do that. And you'll think like this guy could do 80 more reps for sure. Cause that's like how easy it looks. And he'll just rack it and just go back on his phone. And he's like, what I'm doing sets of eight to 12, right? That's right between five and 30. And you're like, oh, but they have to be challenging. So there's something there that's missed. So there has to be what's called relative effort has to be high grimacing, struggling. One of the easiest ways to feel that you're within the zone of training that's close enough to failure, that you're getting robust growth, is when it feels like the weight got way heavier all of a sudden, the attempt to move it faster has really slowed down and it feels perceptively like it's pushing back at you. You know, if you're doing leg presses, you can like, woo, 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 you just move that sled and you get close to failure. You're like, oh, the sled gets heavier and you're slower and you're like, what the hell? Did somebody turn the gravity up in this room? Every working set should feel like that for at least a few repetitions before you rack the weight for you to be confident as a lifter that like, okay, that's a working set. And I can yep. count that into my total sets per session or per exercise or per muscle or per week. And would you say somewhere in like 10 to 15 rep range would be kind of ideal hypertrophy in like the four to five set range or what was five to 30 general five to 30 reps, five to 30 reps. That's a, a broad, it's a broad range. range. Good news. Wow. No, no really wrong answers. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Come on. 10 to 15 is awesome. Five to 30. Five to 30. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of people will pin themselves into one range and rest their entire philosophy on it. So I'll say, look, sets of 15 to 25, the burn, the pump, that's what really grows muscle. If you're doing anything yeah. heavier, ego lifting. Other people will say sets of five, sets of six, sets of eight. That's how you build hardcore muscle. And if you're lifting lighter, you're just a wuss. And both people are wrong in the sense that they think they have found the ultimate answer and right in the sense that they're actually both correct and that it both mm -hmm. works. It's like asking... Um, you know, what's a dog? 
an alien comes down and goes, what is a dog? And they, for some reason, speak strangely. And you say, this is a dog, and you show them like a teacup poodle. And then they point to a Great Dane and go, what's that? And you're like, uh, believe it or not, that's also a dog. And they're like, nonsense. They point to a golden retriever like, this is only the dog. And you're like, that's the typical dog. But it turns out lots of different dogs are still dogs. Well, what would like this sculpting, for lack of better words, effect be of 30 repetitions compared to five? Because my thought would be that 30 would be maybe a little bit more like, I don't know, it's a, a fruity word. but like Incoming bro shit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the best word for that is, but but like something that's a little bit more like sculpting of yeah, a muscle no compared to lower might be. As far as we can tell, I don't. Whatever, man. No, no, totally. What's, no, the, no. what's the what's the what's the effect like the, the actual yeah, objective yeah. physical effect of a muscle yeah. thirty reps compared to five? Because that's a pretty broad range. Yeah, none. Yeah. <laughs> Externally, as as you view the muscle through the skin, none, as far as we can tell, and there is not a decent theoretical rationale for such an effect. How like, interesting. It's just like, yeah, it's just all, if you think about it, um, muscle growth stimulus, because it works on a molecular scale, is the force transducers measure force in imposition in on the muscle. And if they measure a little bit of force, they, they go, they, they, their cascade of molecules to the, to the molecular machines that grow muscle, their cascade goes like a little bit. So it goes bing, bing from sets of 30, right? But you're doing a lot of reps, so it's a lot of pings, right? If you're doing sets of five, the weight is fucking crazy, and then the cascade is more intense. It goes bing, 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 but it's only five. The total pings is the total amount of information received by the molecular machine to say grow, and it's like, I counted 30 pings, time to grow muscle. One ping per rep or six pings per rep, doesn't matter. And it works through the whole range. Another way to think about it is the muscle growth stimulus side of the equation is like filling up a glass. You say, okay, do we take a pitcher and pour it in really fast? Or do we take a little bit of water, like cut out a little hole in a water balloon and just let it sprinkle in? Doesn't matter. As long Mm -hmm. as the water gets in the glass, you're good to go. Now there are limits to that analogy because we just can't, you know, put it out there and after an hour of rainfall, it fills up. Endurance running does not grow muscle, so there's borders to this. But generally speaking, if you fill the glass up anywhere between five and thirty reps, the full glass is what we want. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then the the set range. You said what did you say? Four I didn't to, say anything yet. Okay, sets. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Sorry. Yo, you said something. <laughs> God damn it! Don't you dare take it back. I feel like I'm a presidential candidate. Yeah. So your position yeah, exactly. on sets is what? I'm like, oh god. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the number of sets to do to get maximum hypertrophy can is, is generally measured over the course of a week, um, but we can also measure the course of a, of a given session. So in, in a session, you have the opportunity to grow as much muscle as you can. How many sets do you do? And the answer to that is generally anywhere. This is a real, real tough answer. You'll really hate this one, Aaron. You're going to love this one. Anywhere between three and 12 sets per session per muscle group maximizes the hypertrophic response. Now, for people that have a high proportion of fast twitch motor units and muscle fibers that are really growth prone, for people that are really using unbelievable technique, for people that have a huge mind-muscle connection, I mean, they can turn on their quads like, whoa, from rep one, from people going very close to failure and even beyond, and for people that 
are so new to training, curiously with all of these other things, that they either took a break, a deload, or an active rest phase, or it's day one of the gym, or it's their first six months of training. It's more like three sets, maximizes the hypertrophy response. As a matter of fact, in the first two or three weeks of training, one, two, and three weeks of training, up to three weeks of training, I should have said that, it's statistically undifferentiable whether you get more muscle growth from one hard working set or three hard working sets. Hmm. So when you're new to the shit, everything works. The worst analogy in the world, but is nonetheless, uh, I think accurate is like how much, how much thrusting does it take for you to nut for your first time ever when you're like 15 or whatever and take much, you know what I mean? Oh, like, unless you're very nervous. Right. So like if you're fresh and ready, you're like, Hey, Ta-da. Is, is that is that because it's more uh, when you first start training, it's such a, uh, a like a, a neural stimulus because you're just you're just completely disengaged, like you're completely inhibited in those spaces from like a neuromuscular perspective, and then it kind of transitions into more of like that's a, a bit different synthesis, myofibril or whatever. That's a bit different. Uh, you're, too- you're quoting a piece of insight that's tangentially related, but not exactly what we're talking about. It's okay. been shown that in the first few weeks of training, um, most of the strength increase you get is from neural adaptations, not yeah. from hypertrophic adaptations. You still grow the fastest you ever will in your first few weeks of training, but like you can double your deadlift in the first three weeks of training. You didn't double the size of your glutes. You might even get 10% bigger glutes, but why wouldn't that make your deadlift go up by 10%? Because the nervous system is becoming so used to moving in that pattern and so used to exerting itself, it makes huge gains. The nervous system is the most plastic system in your body, right? Like your muscles don't adapt as fast as well as your nervous system. I mean, like the nervous system beats all, especially the brain. You can learn a new language. That's a completely different way of doing things. The muscles just do this, well, one thing. And sometimes they do it a little bit quicker, a little bit slower, a little bit, get a little bit bigger, a bit smaller. So so, so that's kind of how I would put that. Yeah. Um, yep. Now, if you are slower twitch, if you're very experienced in training, if you don't have a great mind-muscle connection, if you... Um, have a situation where your technique maybe isn't ideal. And if you are pretty far away from failure per set, maybe even within the range of what's normal, but three or four reps away, not, not zero reps away, then maybe 12 ish rep, uh, 12 ish sets per muscle per session maximizes the hypertrophic response. So the easy answer for this is if you start out with training first day, do like one to two sets of everything. Maybe just one and go home. You'll get really sore. You'll grow a ton of muscle. And then after a while, a few weeks, you'll notice that doing one set or two sets just isn't, uh, it's not very challenging. It doesn't get you sore. It doesn't get you very tired. You're ready to train again, literally the next hour, definitely the next day. And because you only train chest, let's say twice a week. It's okay. Like I might as well get more, more stimulus going. Cause I have until Thursday to heal. I trained Monday. You can start increasing the number of sets that you're doing. Yeah. So over time, generally people need a little bit more uh, set addition. Once they become sort of intermediates, you train for anywhere between three and seven years, you become so strong 
and so well connected to your musculature that, and you're so adapted to training that there's kind of a plateau in how many sets you need. And it can even go down a little bit because now you're making every set so much more effective, especially as you get bigger and stronger, you can impose more damage on your muscles, more tension on your muscles. And then all of a sudden they grow without that many sets. I mean, if you look at, you know, professional bodybuilders legs, how many sets of 600 pound leg presses does he need to get all of everything he needs out of his quads? Not, not many. How many sets yeah. does Karen at the gym need? Who's been training for eight months and her quads are like the width of two of my fingers. Uh, you know, she could do 10 sets and maybe needs to do 10 sets to really drive the muscle growth going in there. I wonder what your thoughts are on maintaining athleticism while also simultaneously leaning towards, uh, vanity in the form of, of hypertrophic focused training. Uh, if that's a, a person's intention, at least there's some level of, of, you know, superficial yes. value there. Yeah. Uh, Great question. It, how, how does, how does a person do that? Cause I, I, I'm a person that I went from being quite obsessed with bodybuilding as a teenager. And then I went from being a pretty decent hockey player to progressively becoming a worse hockey player. And I was jacked than anybody had a you know had a beard wore a, you know, like a leather jacket it was just like i looked intimidated i looked like i must be a great athlete yeah and literally every year that i got jacked i got worse at hockey until eventually i just moved to hawaii and said i'm, I'm done <laughs> gonna play hockey so like, in hawaii no no you guys <laughs> no, no options yeah so like how does a person because then and then another kind of a, like a like a a counter argument to that would be somebody that i I'm, we're not like i wouldn't say Gordon Ryan is like my, my friend, but person, spent, you know, yeah, I've spent, spent some time with Gordon Ryan out here and, um, he's, you know, world class, the best player, of all time, best of all time, jujitsu player. And he trains, you know, largely bodybuilding style workouts with his girlfriend. Who's a, who's an ex competitive bodybuilder. Yeah. And so he uses that as kind of a way to create greater, you know, joint durability and kind of like reinforcing the integrity of his connective tissue and just general vanity, I think as well, sure. bodybuilding, while the, the, the large majority of his focus is actually towards his sport. So yeah. what is the, the marriage of vanity just looked jacked working on a six pack? It just feels good with also maintaining athleticism. Yeah. Great question. So the first thing to say is that for anyone given sport and particularly an individual and their body type in the context of that sport, there's going to be a, a, a range that is close to the optimum amount of muscle and body weight they can hold and be their best at that sport. And it's the case in every sport, even in bodybuilding, you can have some muscle groups that get so big, they actually throw off your symmetry. And then people are like, stop training your calves. This is starting to look absurd. You know, one of those things. So, if you get out of that range, everything you do to try to continue to get better at sport is a band-aid over a gaping wound. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. if I want to be the best golfer I can be, fun fact, I actually can't physically golf because my pecs are big enough that I can't extend my elbows completely <laughs> and simultaneously grab a golf club. It's dope problem to have, but makes me an ineligible for golf. And when I was a kid, I used to play tennis. Um, and I, I'm actually decent at tennis, but, uh, I can no longer have a two handed backhand because it's again, same problem, right? So now I have to have a backhand slice and this is not the same. So really? there are hard limits to this kind of thing. First of all, 
Most people probably don't have to worry about that. Most people don't have to worry about that. The limit limit does exist. (laughs) Right. But but in hockey, you might have had to worry about that because it's a power to weight ratio sport and you might have gotten heavy enough to where, no, you weren't as fast and nimble on your skates as you used to be. And like, look, guys that are smaller, more nimble and they're quicker. It's just a fact of physics. So power to weight ratio is a big deal. Fundamental flexibility is a big deal. Fatigability is a big deal. Big muscles get tired when you use them. And uh, if you're really jacked, you can use your muscles a ton. You can like take a couple slap shots in the, in the first period in hockey and just fucking rip the net open, kill the goalie, whatever the fuck, hit someone and their head pops off. But hockey's a game that requires you to continue to be on your skates and skate for quite some time. And like yeah. you might be just a total stud in the first five minutes, but then you're so jacked, you get tired and could just because you're just carrying too much body weight. It, of course, applies to body fat, but also can apply to muscle at the extremes. So that's something we have to say first to understand that anytime I'm asked questions like, how can I marry these two things together? We have to understand that specificity is always and everywhere king. If Gordon Ryan wants to be the best jujitsu practitioner possible, he has to philosophically completely eliminate the concern for aesthetics in his mind. Completely. Because everything that he should be doing is to optimize his, to turn himself into a jujitsu machine. Fuck aesthetics. Totally. That being said, if you want to have a big of both, let's put it a different way. If you want to get jacked and lean and look good, but you don't want to suck total dick at the sport you love to play for fun and maybe a little, even a little competitively, there are a couple of things I can say to that. One, make sure that anytime you enter mobility or flexibility limitations, make sure that you back up off of making that muscle bigger or start a little bit more mobility work, pay attention to that so that you can still hit the positions of your sport. As soon as you can't hit the positions, there's no saving you because your game is going down the drain. Another one is continue to practice your sport and uh, your body will actually learn how to use your new, more jacked, leaner version to better ends, but it can take a while. It can take some number of months and even years to optimize yourself. So I have, I have a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm not anywhere near Gordon Ryan's level. He would walk through me like I'm not even there, but like I'm pretty decent. And the way I'm decent is I'm like 235, five foot six. So like I don't have long leverages. I'm not doing any kind of flying fucking triangles and some shit like that, but I've got a, a game that's tailored to my size. And so I have a game that's uh, takedown based because I'm already so short. I'm at your legs already, motherfucker. I do. Uh, do you, you do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well? I do. Yeah. yeah. How did you know it? Awesome. Oh, because of Gordon. Yeah. I, I assumed you weren't just like a, one of his visiting pool boys and that's how you yeah, know right. him. Although that yeah, would fair. be so much fun. Um, yeah, <laughs> hurt me like one of your Jiu-Jitsu competitors. I'm done. Yeah, I swear so, to God. Uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> don't really hurt me. You know, hurt me emotionally. That's what I want. So yeah, um I have like a deep half game, right? And in deep half, if you're a tiny little ball, people are like, God damn it, how the fuck am I three feet in the air when you're just under me? So, you know, I'm not trying to do any kind of stuff that doesn't match my physique because when I entered jiu-jitsu, I was already roughly the size and strength. I adapted my jiu-jitsu game fluidly. But if you are slowly over time, you already had a good jiu-jitsu game and you started to get much more jacked, you're going to have to wiggle with your game. Like you might not be in, you might not be inverting anymore. You might not be doing X guard as much anymore because you just can't get into those positions as effectively. However, in a sport like jiu-jitsu, you have new weapons now. Uh, Gordon Ryan is really good because he's technically in- incredible. And, and he has through his coach, John Donahue and his own uh, deep intellect, 
a completely systematized tactical approach to jujitsu. I could talk about this till I'm blue in the face, but um, he has an unreal game plan, which he's threaded through so much that when you're going against Gordon Ryan, you're in his court, you're going against his game. And when you're going against his game, he's practiced it a thousand times and you've practiced defending it a hundred. He's a 10 to one advantage on you. But also Gordon Ryan is fucking strong because his muscles are so big because big muscles are strong. So when he pushes his position on you, when he grip controls you, when he passes, when he smashes, when he's in a bad position, needs to push out. It's just a fucking like you've rolled with strong guys. You get a white belt that is 280 and has big traps and it's his first day. No, none of the black belts want to roll with him. Like the fuck that guy, man, he's going to get me hurt. Of course, as a black belt, you're going to beat his ass, but it's going to be annoying. Right, uh, strength is fucking annoying at least, and at best, particularly if they have experience with wrestling, then it's like nobody wants a shot at that. Like, oh, nobody I did a little D one, like, and you're like, fuck that. <laughs> you're like, I'm gonna start. You're gonna start in my guard. That's how we're gonna start this. So, uh, so in any case, I'm gonna start on your back, right? Uh, he, and as a wrestler, he's like, okay, great. You're like, okay, he said great. That's not good. <laughs> so, uh, so in any case, um, muscle size is the most fundamental component of strength. And strength allows you to impose forces on your opponent. There are two components of how you win in jujitsu. It is the targeting of where you're putting your force. Like, do you slide your hand under the right part of the chin or do you slide it here? Nothing happens. And multiply that by how much force you can impose on someone. Because like total respect, if you're going up against a world ranked hundred pound female jujitsu competitor, you know, you can just muscle out of a lot of stuff. Like she yeah. loops her triangle and you're like, snap, fuck out of here, bitch. Are you crazy? Cause strength matters and her positioning is flawless, but like this is the real world we're talking about here. So Gordon Ryan can be incredible because of his muscle and strength, not in spite or despite of it. Now, if he had to optimize his training in the weight room for jujitsu, I would certainly have, have some suggestions for him that could allow him to do a lot of bodybuilding and still look as jacked as he does now, even maybe more jacked, but the kind of movements he would be doing would be less bodybuilding and more things that look like weightlifting and powerlifting. The kind of movements, whole body, big, explosive, gnarly movements that replicate more like what you would see in jujitsu, and then he would put on even more hurting power onto people. What would the... What would the top whatever two three four whatever movements that you'd recommend a gordon ryan or gordon ryan specifically to to improve jujitsu while also maintaining uh hypertrophy based training? yeah so weighted abdominal movements you want your abs as strong as possible through a maximum range of motion because that's uh, snapping people down and all this other stuff coming up uh from guard to various positions um the abs and hip flexors are all involved a ton and when you get under in someone's guard or in deep half or next guard to lift them up and out and over you that's critical you want a lot of pulling strength that's probably number one or tied there with abs. So uh, pull up, uh, weighted pull ups, bent over rows, deadlifts. Like if you try to snap a guy down and nothing happens, you're like, ah, fuck, this is really bad news. And then they snap you down with the same pulling muscles and your face hits the ground and then they're on your back. You're like, ah, this is not going my way. I thought uh, the Gracie said that all you need was technique. Somebody lied to me, right? You're going up against Gordon Ryan. Like, why does he have veins in his pecs, coach? Am I in trouble? Coach is like, yes, you are absolutely in trouble. So, yeah. and then and then other upper body work, upper body pushing, close grip benching, um, deficit weighted push-ups or benching with a cambered bar. So you're in a really deeply stretched position, skull crushers. So when you're here framing up, like if you can frame with 
150 pounds and just do that. There's a lot, like it's really tough to smash you when you're burying underhooks, you can get an underhook on everyone. So basically like gigantic shoulders, back, chest, arms, and super fucking strong abs, lower back and glutes. The uh, quads, hamstrings, and calves have very small role to play in jiu-jitsu. As a bodybuilder and as a trainer of athletes that run and jump, uh, it pains me to say that, but the legs are not so important in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Probably hipping, hipping out would be a valuable quality to develop, though. Having like a really powerful buck. Which is where the glutes words. come in handy, for sure. Yep. So yep. the glutes. Now, hipping out is, is mostly technical. Uh, most people's glutes are strong enough to hip out. Simultaneously, right. especially the way Gordon Ryan does the hip out, um, it's actually a lot of pressing strength, too, because the glutes mm -hmm. initiate the first part of the hip out, but he's strong enough with his big pecs and triceps and shoulders mm -hmm. to do that last part and extend his hands. So now he has his hands in your hips, and you're like three feet above the ground, and then he takes his knees, pulls it through and well you're not in mount anymore and he's got your fucking ankle and then well you know you've seen all the videos and i, I don't know if yeah. you ever rolled with gordon ryan before no i haven't i've, I've rolled at 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 new wave at, at rooks but i have probably best to just continue that streak of not rolling with him you know i'm kidding you yeah. know it's going to be humbling obviously it, it probably humbling and confusing because you're not even going to know what's going on yeah yeah um all right you have to go probably pretty soon i'd imagine right how what's, what's yeah roughly three minutes from now all right. Last question I have. If a person is still a little skinny fat, how do they get the last little bit of skinny fatness off? So <laughs> they've cut they've cut weight. Uh, they went from being just like general dad bod to now suddenly they've got some muscle definition, but they're still like the hips are a little soft. Uh, what do we what do we do in that that uh, situation for that person totally. to get that last little like cut? We gotta, and, maintain, and maintain that. So it's maintain. not something that's like a sacrifice and then it comes back in, in 10 days. This is a different answer to a question of I'm skinny fat and I don't really train or diet properly. What do I do? There's a different answer to that question. Yeah. But the question you're asking is they've done some stuff and now they still have a little bit of body fat left. Not a little bit of body fat in the technical sense, but a little bit hanging off here and there. Yeah. That little softness, little yeah. baby seal mm -hmm. stuff. Baby seal. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> You, you feel confident in the gi, but on no gi day, you're like, ta-da, and everyone's like, oh, <laughs> <Right>. God. <laughs> Thank God this isn't the beach. Yeah. So um, one thing you have to do is step back from dieting a little bit. <clears throat> so if you diet for three or four or five months in a row, your body becomes really resistant to losing fat. It accumulates a lot of fatigue. You get hungry, and it just gets all, all a big wash. So I would say is several months of either maintaining your weight and eating healthy and well and training with weights and doing jiu-jitsu or whatever – and then potentially even just slowly gaining to gain maybe five to 10 pounds, maybe something like five pounds over the course of three months, which is super easy. It's fun. You get to eat a little bit of bullshit, but still train with weights for super hardcore. You're going to build some muscle. You're not going to build much fat, maybe a little bit of added fat, a couple pounds, who cares? And at the same time, your diet fatigue is going to heal completely and fall off like crazy. So your body's going to be really responsive to another fat loss phase. And then take one or two weeks of active rest. Just be asked, don't train much, or eat whatever you want. Your body's going to rest. Your mind is going to rest. You'll be ready for your next challenge. Then take, oh, about 12 weeks to train with weights hardcore, eat plenty of protein, eat well, you know, four to six meals a day. And, uh, crank a little bit of a calorie deficit, make sure your physical activity is nice and high, and then just whittle it, stop eating junk, make a, about, you know, uh, drop the fats and the carbs a little bit to create something like a 500 calorie deficit, maybe five, six, 700 calorie deficit. And then you're going to lose maybe 10 to 15 pounds of fat in that time, keep all of your muscle, and then voila, 
all of a sudden you are way leaner with the same muscle. And if you're still not as jacked and tan, if you would like to be, you simply repeat that process over again. Take a, take another slow gain phase, two months of gaining a total of five pounds, active rest for one or two weeks, and then another 12 week fat loss phase. You do that iteratively enough. You'll either jump into genetic limits where God's like, look, this, this is how your body's going to look, man. I don't know what to tell you. Look at your mom, look at your dad, look at your sister, look at your brother. Yeah. This is as good as it gets. You're a superhero version of them still, or potentially for many people, they're going to get to looking pretty fucking good. And then they get used to looking like that. They no longer think that's a good look. All their friends think they're jacked. They don't think they're jacked anymore. They look in the mirror, they cry a lot. And that's body dysmorphia folks. Thanks for uh, coming to my Ted talk. I'm well familiar with it. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. I, 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 what's, where's the best place you, you have the, your app you have, what's the best place to point people that want to go deeper into your work? Obviously it's, 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 it's vast. The, oh, please. The, what you bring to the table. So I appreciate it. Thank that. you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. The place to find me is uh, the Renaissance Periodization YouTube channel. So type in Dr. Mike Isratel or anything, just copy my name from this podcast on Spotify and then just drop it into YouTube and a whole bunch of videos of my ugly face come up and subscribe to the channel. And we're weekly, we post about five videos and they're educational and, and with desperate attempts to be relevant and entertaining. And so you can learn all about training and diet and uh, how to get lean and jacked and better at sports and maybe try to whittle away a semblance of happiness in your life. Well, we do not promise happiness. Love it. Uh, and then folks also can jump over and check out the other conversation, which was a failed attempt at making it be this conversation. What a disaster that was. Exercise size. I had a great time. I had a great time. I was just, I'm just joking. A disaster. I was just trying to see if you nibble on it. Think- I would say, what a disaster that was. And you just could calmly shake your head like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Well, thanks, man. Hopefully, I get to see you here in Austin at some point. Um, if you do, that'd I'd be love great. That. That'd come, be great. Come train on it. Uh, new wave, all the places. And um, yeah. Look forward to next time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for tuning in. That's it. That's all. See you next week. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Once again, tune into the Align Podcast YouTube page. Subscribe over there so you can see the video for this and the instructional content that we deliver there each week. Also tune in for the following part two and part three that will be coming up on this. And also I'd recommend listening to the Joel Seedman, Zach Tallender, the great squatting debate. That would be an excellent episode to listen to, to get a very different perspective on training uh, from Dr. Mike and also very entertaining as well. All right, that's it. That's all. I'll see you guys next week.